You're listening to CRST, the podcast from Bryn Mawr Communications. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of CRST, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Amir Morefi. I'm a LASIK and cataract surgeon in Los Angeles, California. And on today's episode, we'll be navigating the multifaceted world of cataract surgery in patients with comorbidities, as featured in the August issue of CRST. We'll be dissecting the nuances of managing cataract patients who are neurodiverse, those presenting with extreme refractive errors, and patients who are physically disabled. Each of these patient groups brings a unique set of challenges, and our goal today is to arm you with knowledge, strategies, and insights to successfully navigate them. I'm delighted to be joined by my co-contributors to the CRST's August issue, Dr. Susanna Rowe, Madhura Shah, and Dr. Drew Dixon. It's fantastic to have you with us today to share your expertise. I'm Susanna Rowe. I'm an ophthalmologist and a cataract surgeon at Boston Medical Center, and I'm the founder of the Exceptional Vision Service, which is a service dedicated to taking care of patients with special needs uh, who have needs for surgical eye care. My name is Madura Shah. I'm a fourth-year medical student at Boston University Chobanian and Appadesian School of Medicine. I got involved with the Exceptional Vision Service um, by leading a study to assess the outcomes for our patients. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having us, Amir. Uh, my name is Drew Dixon. I am currently practicing as a cataract and refractive surgeon in Omaha, Nebraska at Kugler Vision and excited to be here to talk about these exciting topics. All right. Without further ado, let's dive in. Uh, to begin our conversation, um, I'm going to talk to Susanna Rowe about how she got involved with neurodiversity. You want to tell us a little bit about that? I would say it was probably about 15 or 20 years ago. I had a patient who uh, had autism and intellectual disability and bad cataracts. And as I had been taught, we put the patient under general. We did the cataract surgery. We did a uh, retrobulbar block for pain control. And when he came out of anesthesia, he was absolutely completely terrified and he was fighting us. He didn't want to tolerate his patch and he um, was trying to get off the stretcher. So we ended up actually tying him down to the stretcher and admitting him and pharmacologically uh, restraining him for about five days. And at, at the end of that process, I, I started to think that I thought we I wasn't sure that we had done the right thing for him. I, we had really traumatized him, even though his vision was better. And so I started asking the question, is there another way to approach um, surgery for these folks, in particularly people who can't tolerate having an eye shield? And so um, really, that's just started a decades-long process of trying to problem-solve what were the biggest barriers that these folks were experiencing. And it it seemed like the shield was actually probably the biggest thing. So we started um, by working on our wound construction, scleral tunnel, lots of sutures, and eliminating the shield. And that made an enormous difference for in terms of access to care for patients. Have you felt, have you had any issues since uh, with patients with all this, I mean, what about suture removal? Was that ever a concern? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And I actually, over the last 10 years, have moved to a sutureless clear cornea approach with no, um, no shield. And 
what we end up doing, and this is even good for patients who self-stim by hitting their face. And we, what we do see is that people who have lost their vision, if they are nonverbal and they have sensory deprivation, they often will actually try to rub their eye and self-stim, get those phosphines and the sensations. And often we see that immediately after the surgery as well, but then they actually rub their eye a lot less afterwards in my experience. But the main thing is to get a wound that you think is going to withstand whatever it is that they're going to do. And so we we provoke in the OR, we do a Seidel, um, we push hard, and then we let them do their thing. And it, you know, it, it, when we first started doing it, we would only do it for people who it was clear this was absolutely the only way we would do, they would be able to get surgery. Like without this, they were going to be light perception for the rest of their life. And so the risks and benefits started to seem like it made sense. My sense was over time that we were actually doing pretty well, but it wasn't until Madura Shah came on board and she started actually looking formally at our outcomes um, that it started to become clear that this is actually a, a, a reasonable technique to offer people. And Madura, I don't know if you want to speak about the outcomes that we've been seeing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so like Dr. Rowe mentioned, um, she's done surgery, they, we've done surgery on over 250 patients with the EVS service, and um, generally the outcomes have been very good, um, no complications that have been found. I took a deep dive into uh, the surgeries that were done for 72 consecutive surgeries that were done for 65 unique patients um, to see how their vision was before, how it was affecting their lives, and uh, how they tolerated the mod modified protocol that we use and the benefits that they received. Um, so in, in this uh, study, we saw that uh, for these patients with cataracts, about a third of them had decreased mobility. Um, this was a big concern for a lot of the caregivers because they the patients felt less confident navigating the world around them. They had lower independence um, and sometimes were experiencing falls as well. So a real safety concern. Um, about one in four had difficulty feeding themselves. Um, caregivers might say things such as meal times are messier right now. Um, and then thinking about things that our patient population finds meaningful and ways that they find um, joy in, in the world. One of those things might be watching television. And um, about one in five of these patients had difficulty watching television or no longer seemed interested in doing that activity. Um, we saw in terms of the modifications that we have, 85 85% of patients had no pain after surgery. Um, and it might be a little bit difficult to assess this in patients who might not be verbal. So we really rely on the caregivers to um, carefully observe how they're behaving. Um, sometimes when these uh, people might be frustrated or uh, in pain, they might uh, have more like Dr. Rowe mentioned, self-stimulation or touching the eye, they might be um, more frustrated. And um, taking into account cues like that helped us see that 85% of them were not in pain afterwards, which was really good to know. Um, and then overall, there was a 0% complications rate. So no infections, no instances of wound dehiscence, um, no need to go back into the OR. And so that was really exciting to see as well, because um, from Dr. Rowe's experience, from our experience talking to these caregivers, um, a lot of surgeons are, are nervous about this uh, process in patients um, because of those severe complications. 
Um, and most excitingly, patients seemed to benefit from the surgery. So 95% of patients had improvements in their activities of daily vision, including those I mentioned, um, decreased mobility or feeding themselves. And um, about one in five had an improvement in mood, which of course really impacts their quality of life. Really impressed. And I'm really proud to hear of the work that you guys are doing and and appreciate you, Madura, for doing the work of following up and actually getting some of the, the feedback and the data of how these patients are doing. And Dr. Rowe, for you to do this difficult work um, to improve the quality of life and the joy and independence of people who are otherwise sometimes forgotten in our society, that is super cool to hear. And I'm, I'm actually really appreciative to, to be a part of this conversation right now. So um, I have some questions, uh, you know, some of the tips for cataract surgery in these neurodiverse patients, do you do you do any of those like dropless techniques? Do you put intracameral, subconj, subtenon, any type of uh, antibiotics or uh, steroids to help assist or do the caregivers, uh, how, how do you approach this? I'm curious. Yeah, you can. It really depends on the patient's tolerance. We have some people where drops are not an issue and for other folks, it's really hard. I mean, this this study was all comers. So uh, some of these folks, you really can't even approach them physically because they can't tolerate being touched at all. Um, and so in that case, we, we just don't do anything. Or we do, sometimes when they're asleep at night, the caregiver can smear some Tobradax or you know, some sort of an ointment on their eyes, eyelashes, and it gets in. But uh, we you could certainly do intracameral. We've talked about doing some of the depots of of um, steroid, I worry a little bit about the pressure because we can't really monitor. Um, and in fact, what we found is that we've been doing fine without anything at all. So less is more. Walk me through. Uh, walk me through a little bit of how you do some of your preoperative testing. How do you, you know, the biometer or a scan or is it all in the operating room? I'm, I'm so curious. Yeah, it's it's up to the patient. My rule is. We don't want to traumatize the patient. We don't want to do anything where the patient is going to re remember their experience with us badly. And so if all it is, is I observe from across the room, that's all we do. And the whole point of the visit then is just to decide if we're going to go to the OR or not. That's all I need to know. And to do that, it's really by history. And we're trying to figure out, do they used to see well? Because a lot of these folks, maybe they have optic atrophy from birth, right? So you've got to figure out, has there been a change? And if there's a change that goes along with a cataract, it makes sense, it's plausible. Even if you can't do an exam, then I take them to the OR and that's where we do the exam under anesthesia. For some folks, all we can do is, you know, if they're willing to take some uh, Versed or, or some Valium at home, orally before they come in, that can be helpful. Sometimes you just have to approach them with a ketamine dart through the clothes, you know, sitting in the car and you go from there and you bring them into the OR fully clothed. If that's what it takes, we have the most amazing team um, that's willing to work with us. And then we just do everything in the OR. So that's probably the biggest barrier for some community ophthalmologists in terms of being able to do both do a general anesthesia, which is really important, and also being able to do the, the measurements in the OR. But then we do measurements for both eyes. We do the surgery, and then we come back with second eye. We do the post-op exam for the first eye, and then we do the other surgery. And then it depends whether we really think we need to come back for a third EUA or not. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes the patient's doing really well, and we're doing fine. I think, you know, it. One of the things that we've seen is that 
and, and Madura can speak to this more because she has more data on this, but what, what we, the stories we hear is that people have been trying to find somebody who would address their cataracts um, for a long time in most cases. So most of these cases are very advanced. Uh, many of them are traumatic. The surgeries aren't simple. Um, and that case review is a whole, you know, all comers. And many of them were extremely complex, but the surgeries went really well. Uh, so I do think you need to have good cataract surgery skills, wound, good wound construction skills, but it's not rocket science. You know, there's nothing, most people can do that if they're, if they're in a situation where they can do the measurements in the OR. And I think, you know, as, as we've seen the, uh, the degree to which people are suffering for lack of care can be heartbreaking. And I mean, Madura has many quotes from families and caregivers about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, one of my, our colleagues, Isabel Shalom, who is a, a Northeastern graduate who did a capstone actually on the experience of caregivers pursuing cataract surgery for patients, uh, for people with special needs, uh, took a look at five specific um, uh, caregiver uh, patient groups and tried to understand what they went through through quoted interviews. Um, one of those caregivers uh, talked about a journey seeing six different ophthalmologists, um, none of whom were able to take on the patient for surgery. And one of the quotes that really stuck in the head of this caregiver was, um, oh, he'll be fine without surgery. He'll be all right. And that was really frustrating for them to hear because they had noted these changes Dr. Rowe had mentioned. They had seen um, over the course of a year and a half, this person grow more um, withdrawn, um, their mood changed, uh, they interacted with the world differently, they weren't recognizing the people around them, and their quality of life was really suffering. Um, so it, as Dr. Rowe mentioned, if a shield is the thing that's preventing these folks from having a better quality of life, then perhaps as Dr. Rowe's done, that it's time to be okay with the shield coming off. I mean, I've had patients who, adult patients with Downs who were diagnosed with early Alzheimer's and it wasn't Alzheimer's, it was vision loss. We do their cataracts and it's gone. There's no dementia. You know, people who are using wheelchairs because they supposedly can't walk, but they just can't see people who are in diapers because they can't get to the bathroom, but they're perfectly able to um, toilet themselves. You know, it, it's, it's incredible. So one of the reasons that I um, wanted to work with Madura, um, other than the fact that she is going to be an ophthalmologist, she's applying now and she's going to be the most amazing ophthalmologist, um, is that I, I was hoping to be able to empower other surgeons to be able to do this more so that you know, people who have the skills and the abilities can can do this and feel comfortable uh, making some small changes that can be life changing for the patients. Yeah, one of, one of the things that I wish uh, our listeners on the podcast can see is the passion and the the excitement in your guys's faces when you guys are talking about this. This is super cool stuff. I mean, these, this is like cataract surgery, and we know it's great, but this is genuinely making a huge difference in these patients' lives and. You know, not just for the fact that they get their some of their ADLs back, but uh, the dementia risk. And what do you think is some? What, what are some like encourage? Like, if you want to encourage some other practitioners to start to offer surgery in these uh, neurodiverse individuals, what tips can you guys share? And 
Maduro, you're you're early, uh, you know, you're planting these seeds early. So we're super excited to watch you grow in your career. But I mean, your perspective is also equally important, you know. I think, you know, um, stepping into the EBS clinic from doing other rotations in ophthalmology, everything in EBS clinic um, is much more deliberate. So, for example, our amazing technicians who are used to working with this um, different population, they uh, they know when um, a patient like this comes in, um, they'll go out to the waiting room and grab them and, and kind of see how they're interacting uh, just from a distance. So we had one patient coming in post-op and we deliberately took uh, wait until we were about 10 feet away and waved over to the patient and he waved right back at us, which was just so exciting to see because we had seen him before surgery and how small the world was around him. He was, you know, not engaging with anyone. Um, really, you could see how closed off he was compared to in his post-operative visit. He was physically looking all around the room, you know, looking at paintings on the wall, looking at things across the room. Um, if you went over to hand him something, he would reach right over and grab it. So you could definitely see how he was experiencing the world completely differently because of this surgery. And, and to that point, I would say, listen to the caregivers. You know, they will tell you. We don't have Snellen charts for people who can't read, but they will tell you. And, you know, take the time to figure out what matters to that person. And if that is a loss for them, then it might be worth doing surgery. You know, it's not just can they work or can they read or can they drive, but do they do puzzles? Do they have a friend they hang out with? Do they like to go out for walks? I, I think that's a really important piece. I think our, our job is, of course, first do no harm, but we also think about leaving a patient with a problem that we have a really good solution for and leaving them blind because we we don't we don't think outside the box about how to help them that's a different kind of harm so i think for us to be really open-minded about what are the different ways that we can meet these people where they're at each person is different uh, meet their needs directly you, there's a lot that you can do and the surgery itself i mean I think it's it's great to see Maduro's data and Isabel's data um, in print because you can see that I'm, I'm hoping that people will see that this is actually something that very, very consistently can be done safely. It's not a fluke. Uh, yes, probably we'll have some complications at some point in the future, but we have had none at this point. I want to knock on wood. But, you know, I think it's you know, for, for people who have good surgical skills, I think it's very doable. Thank you guys so much. I'm, I'm super impressed. Please read the entire article to, to get a little bit more in depth about it. This is really, really cool stuff. Uh, now let's delve into another special patient population. Let's talk about those with physical disabilities. Dr. Dixon, you want to lead us, lead us on your journey? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, uh, haven't been doing this for, for decades, like, um, Susanna, but, um, yeah, I have some experience just starting as a resident and then through fellowship and as a young attending, taking care of patients with physical disabilities, whether it be cataract surgery, which is more the topic of this or, um, patients coming in for refractive surgery. And, uh, you know, I think this is, is something if, people are interested in getting into taking care of uh, those with disabilities, whether it's physical or cognitive, we, we all see patients with varying levels of physical disabilities and ailments, whether it's just sore, stiff necks and backs or 
um, you know, talking about quadriplegic patients or, or varying degrees of that. So I think there's something applicable for everyone um, when it comes to, to learning about how to take care of patients with physical disabilities. So, um, you know, like, like most surgeries we do, um, planning is crucial. So, um, you know, this isn't something you just want to kind of walk into the OR and look at your sheet and be like, oh man, I've got this patient who isn't mobile. And, um, I, I saw a good, um, video recently of, uh, I think it was Brandon Ayers who did a, um, took his OR staff through a walkthrough for a patient who had severe kyphosis and ended up having to do his surgery standing up instead of sitting down and was very thankful that they had gone through and kind of walked through the game plan for these patients. And, and I think, you know, we, we take care of um, some patients with quadriplegia or hemiplegias, um, a lot who have a great deal of difficulty positioning themselves or maybe come in with extra lines like a Foley or a feeding tube or colostomy or something. Um, I'm, I'm not in an academic setting. I'm in a private practice that has an in-office OR. So the transitioning becomes a lot bigger uh, issue for us just to make sure that we have the space for it, that our staff is equipped in transferring. And so oftentimes we're having to talk to these um, patients' facilities and just make sure that they have someone that can help transport patients who are better equipped to deal with that than our staff may be. So there's there's a lot of planning that goes into it. But I think just like it's very rewarding to be taking care of some of these patients with neurodiversity, it's really rewarding to take care of these patients with physical disabilities because so many of the things that we take for granted, just being able to you know, walk across the room and grab something we're looking at or you know, being able to see things um, up close or, you know, at least the pre presbyopic ophthalmologists out there like myself, um, we, we really, um, take that for granted. And these patients who maybe can find a wheelchairs or beds or, or something, their vision is so much more important to them because they, uh, end up, you know, spending their days, you know, either looking out a window or watching TV or looking at a book. And so, I think the impact that we can have through doing cataract surgery and doing it well in these patients is, is phenomenal. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. It seems like there's a lot of overlap kind of, uh, in, in both, uh, Dr. Rowe and your, in your world. And I'm sure there's a combination of that. I mean, have you ever felt there was a moment where it was difficult to do the procedure based on the positioning? Cause so much of our, of our, before we do surgery is based on how the head is positioned. And I've had a couple of patients who are physically disabled and you almost have to like, sometimes I'm, I'm tall. So when I sit at the, when I sit at the head and sometimes my legs don't fit under and it's, uh, you know, to walk me through some of your challenges. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that's something that I, I think is fairly common for people to run into is for people who have stiff necks or backs or some measure of kyphosis, trying to be able to get their, their head and their eyes parallel to the floor becomes really difficult. And so, you know, we're taught during our training to, you know, you want the surgeon to be comfortable. And in some of these cases, it's really hard if you want to get the patient lined up properly for the surgeon to actually be totally comfortable. I, I tend to um, operate temporarily most of the time, but have had to switch to operating superiorly if, if patients have had extreme kyphosis and it's hard to fit my legs under the bed. One thing um, that we recently uh, got several months ago that's been nice for some of these patients is heads up visualization. So it makes it um, not, we don't have to, you know, contort our bodies quite as, as awkwardly to, to get our um, eyes in the oculars. And so that's, that's made that a little bit easier, but it's, you still sometimes have to get a little bit creative and, um, you know, having extra towels around to, 
you know, prop under patients' heads to support. Um, I, I, I'm yet to have to do a cataract surgery standing up, so maybe that will happen sometime, but, you know, certainly have to be flexible um, um, in, in how you're positioning. I think if ideally if you're able to make the, the patient comfortable with their, their head lined up nicely and yourself comfortable, that's ideal, but sometimes you have to be able to adjust to be able to help these patients out. Dr. Rowe, do you ever have patients who are also having physical challenges in terms of not just neurodiverse, but uh, absolutely. Yeah. The exceptional vision service, basically the idea is anybody's having trouble getting surgical eye care for whatever reason. But, um, I, I actually stand quite a lot and I find it to be easier than sitting in these really uncomfortable positions. It's, you know, it's a little bit of a party trick with the residents cause it, it looks really impressive, but um, <laughs> it's, it's not, you know, I, I'd encourage people to try it cause it's, it's not as hard as it seems. You want to, lean yourself a little bit against the bed, make sure that the bed's really well locked. Um, and then you need to have somebody else uh, driving the microscope. So you're standing on your left foot and you can um, use stools and things, but it's actually for an experienced surgeon, I think a pretty, pretty easy move to move to standing if you need to. And um, yeah. I can confirm that it impresses all of the residents. <laughs> it's really fun. But, you know, and I think a lot of surgeons don't, we don't use the microscope pedal that much, right? Once you start getting into it and you can, you can actually do pretty well with most of the case without having to, we, you know, if you have a resident, that's great because they can run the microscope, but. Yeah, we, we actually, we have a fellow at our, so I'll have to practice some and, uh, you know, bust that out someday in the OR and, see, see if I can impress our fellow, but, <laughs> but yeah, that's, I, I feel like that's a great school to have. One thing that we, um, really started doing more of during COVID, but especially for these patients that we found is helpful too, is to offer, um, same day bilateral surgery for these patients. Um, you know, so much of the issue is getting them positioned properly and comfortable and, um, you know, for especially the physically disabled transportation issues are very common. It's usually a really big ordeal coordinating with their staff on their visits and post-op visits and, and all of that. So the ability to minimize that through doing same day bilateral surgery has been really nice, um, for us. And I think nice for the patients too, just because they can come in and, um, get both eyes taken care of at the same time. That's a great tip. I, I, I remember one of the things that appealed to me about ophthalmology was being able to sit down during surgery, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm actually kind of uh, excited to try standing up. Um, <laughs> talk me through a little bit about challenges with also with like measurements and lens choices. Is there a particular lens choice that you prefer in some of these patients? Do you prefer, you know, trifocal lenses where they will become less dependent on glasses if they have certain disabilities, if they're paraplegic or hemiplegic, like, is that something that you consider? Yeah, totally. Yeah. So, so a lot of it, you know, independing that and, you know, we, I, I work at a, a refractive and cataract surgery practice. We're using a lot of advanced technology IOLs pretty regularly, but especially for these patients, I, I think there's some added benefit if they, um, especially if they have any upper extremity um, mobility issues. You know, some patients can't even put their glasses on or take glasses off. And so the hassle of putting readers on and off really 
um, is magnified in these patients. So that may be a patient you want to consider doing, you know, assuming they're, they're a good candidate for a trifocal or, or something like that may want to consider doing that or doing some type of blended vision for them to give them some spectacle independence. So that certainly goes into our, our consideration for these patients and their level of, um, of dexterity, um, just being able to put on glasses or take off glasses. Um, you know, some of these patients are spending 95% of their day looking up close, you know, trying to look at books and, and things too. And so near vision might be even more of a, of a important factor for them. Um, but yeah, it's, I, it's something definitely to consider. I think the temptation is to really not even think about that and, and, patients who may have disabilities to think about some of these um, advanced technology lenses, but they really can be a, a powerful tool to helping them gain some more independence than what they would have otherwise. That's great. Walk me through a little bit of some of your post-op regimens for some of these patients. These, Yeah, sure. So generally we, we do, um, we have a, a compounding pharmacy. So typically, um, you know, if the patient has adequate, um, caretakers and or, yeah, has family or if they're at a uh, nursing home or a place like that where you have someone that can put drops in, we'll usually just keep them on a normal drop regimen. We, we typically have use a, a combination um, antibiotic NSAID and steroid drop that we taper over the course of a month. So typically we do that. Most of the time in our experience, there's someone who is able to help with drops. Um, you know, certainly you could consider doing, we, we tend to use um, intracameral moxifloxacin on all our patients anyways. And I know there are surgeons out there who are using that and not using any topical antibiotics after surgery. Um, you could certainly consider doing um, some subtenons medication or Dexacu or Dextenza or something like that to give them um, uh, steroid coverage as well. But you want to make sure, again, um, like, like Suzanne had talked about, that they have adequate ability to follow up and make sure they're not having IOP spikes and things. So that all, it, it's really a tailored um, decision for each patient on, on what the best course is. But usually um, in our experience, just in, in our practice setting, we're able to just keep them on the standard post-op regimen. One question that I have is, do you tailor your post-op visits differently for some of these more challenging patients? Do you, or do you, do you, how do you, get them to come in or what kind of, uh, you follow them up more closely, less closely. Talk me through that. Yeah. So, so being able to do again, the same day bilateral really helps with that because it's, it's less visits. We still try to tend, you know, again, it, it depends on the individual, but try to stick to a regular post-op regimen. So, um, in our practice, we usually see people, day one, week one, month one, three month, one year. And so we typically try to stick to that. Um, you know, if they're doing really well day one and, you know, are seemingly don't have any issues, then we may, you know, bypass that week one visit, but still like to see them at least a month out. Um, you know, I think, I think being able to have a caretaker who knows that patient well coming to those visits is really important too, because, Sometimes these patients come in and the, the person in the room that helped transport them doesn't know anything about them and some of the communication can get lost. So ideally, there would be someone who is familiar with the patient at that visit with the patients too. So trying to coordinate all that can be difficult, but generally we try to stick to our, our regular um, post-op schedule for these patients. Dr. Rowe, how about you? I know you mentioned a little bit how sometimes, you know, follow-up is just if the patient looks happy you just leave it at that because you don't want you want to minimize trauma is there 
certain scenarios where you do follow up a little bit more closely or do you kind of just mostly I'm basing it on comfort. If the caregiver says the patient seems to be in pain, I'll bring them in more often. That happens relatively rarely, or if they're just not sure. Um, a lot of times the best we can do is a pen light exam from four feet away. And so bringing them in isn't necessarily that much yield. Uh, I usually do a IOP by palpation um, just to make sure that the eyeball's not super hard, but it's pretty rudimentary what we can, we can do. So I try to, as much as possible, adhere to our usual standard um, schedule, but only when I think there's actually a benefit. I want to see Madura's face when she gets to see just regular routine cataract surgery. <laughs> <laughs> Everything um, else is going to seem easy. Do you have any more tips or anything else you want to leave us with? I, I think, um, you know, really the, the take home for this um, and talking about these patients with physical disabilities is, is individualize the approach, really take time to plan this out. Um, you know, consider measures to minimize the visits they have to make because transportation is usually an issue and um, consider using some of the advanced technology that's there for us to help them gain even more independence. Consider taking care of the patients yourself, not referring out. I mean, we have a six to 12 month wait list. And so, you know, we, it, this the, many of these patients should be and can be taken care of in the community and, and locally. And I think um, I'm hoping that people will listen to this podcast and realize how incredibly rewarding it can be and how um, how straightforward it can be with a few helpful hints. As we turn our attention to another challenging scenario, I'm, I'm humbled to be in your guys' presence. You guys do amazing work. Now we're going to deal with patients who have extreme refractive errors. Not as challenging as dealing with uh, you know neurodiverse and physically disabled patients, but Patients with extreme refractive errors also pose a very different set of challenges. Extreme refractive errors in terms of high, my, high myopia, high hyperopia, both pose different types of challenges depending on age, the severity of the cataract, and the basic status of the rest of the eye. The preoperative assessment is probably one of the most important parts of anybody with extreme refractive errors. When you have your high myopic patients, you really got to make sure the retina is in good good condition. We want to make sure that, again, we're doing no harm. We want to help these patients out. We want to put a lens in their eye that's going to help them see in a way they've never been able to see. We want to make sure that our calculations have our necessary adjustments. You know, sometimes we have patients with axial lengths greater than 30. You know, our normal regular calculations don't really adjust for that. Um, so we want to make sure that we do a lot of extra planning. We do a good comprehensive assessment. Um, especially even in patients with high, you know, high degrees of hyperopia. You want to make sure that the AC, that the amount of space you have between that cornea and that lens and how dense that cataract is, you may want to consider using different types of technologies before you go into it, whether it's a femtosecond laser or even a tool like a MyLoop to do a little bit of your initial uh, cuts so that you minimize the amount of phaco energy that's going in there. But every single step, involves patient education and expectation setting. That's going to be the big one that you really want to make sure you talk to because 
everybody who has a friend has a friend who had cataract surgery who was so easy and it was so great and you could see so great the next day. So these patients who come in with these high degrees of uh, refractive error are going to want that same experience. So it's really important to sit down and talk with them and, and set them up for what t- what's a realistic expectation for them. Do you guys have any uh preoperative considerations that you guys, uh, any tips that you guys use? Yeah, I, th- I think the biggest thing that, that you touched on was just managing expectations. Uh, I, I think I first heard um, heard it from Eric Donenfeld, but said that if you talk to the patient about it before the surgery, it's an expectation. If you talk to them about it after the surgery, if something doesn't go as they expect, then it's a complication. So, you know, being able to set, being able to set their mind up for, hey, this isn't your friend's cataract surgery that they had your eyes different and your eyes special and you know, we're going to do our best but um you know also planning for you know okay what do you know especially if it's in in our setting again um doing a lot of refractive surgery if it's someone who has high refractive expectations and there's a refractive miss how are you going to manage that are you going to um plan to do an IOL exchange are you going to do a piggyback are you going to do a LASIK enhancement um, so I, I think, you know, preoperatively really just kind of managing expectations and telling them also like, Hey, this may not just be a one-time thing You're, you know, we might have to go back and do something to touch this up and you're got a higher chance of needing that than, than someone else. I think that's by far and away the most important, um, thing with these patients. Yeah, hundred percent agree. I mean, my mentors as well, you spend that extra five minutes preoperatively discussing you're going to save yourself hours of post-operative chair time, kind of trying to reel it back. But I, I definitely agree with that. I mean, like anything, the preoperative assessment is very important as to how we're going to go into our next segment of intraoperative skills. So now, now that we've done our exam, we know exactly what we're trying to do. Now, the way we plan our surgical technique, our corneal incisions, our capsulotomy, you know, the way we change the bottle height of our phaco machines in different scenarios, you know, making sure that everything looks and feels comfortable for us in order for us to provide an excellent surgery comes into play. And so there's a, I'm really curious because I'm, I know I'm sitting amongst great surgeons, you know, if you guys have any individualized approaches towards patients with high myopia, high hyperopia, what, what kind of uh, special techniques do you guys utilize, if any? Dr. Rowe? Well, I was going to say in the first section, this is going to be out of order, but in terms of pre-op, have a good retina friend on hand for those high myopes. Uh, I think it's really important to send people with really long eyes to to get a good retina exam beforehand, that often they can reinforce areas of lattice and other things reduce the risk there. And by the same token, if you have a, by the same token, if you have a, um, a really short eye and you're concerned about the cornea, you know, consider doing uh, both corneal pachymetry and endothelial cell count and getting a sense of what that cornea is going to look like afterwards. Uh, if you have a dense lens and a shallow eye and a cornea with very few, you know, endothelial cells, it's going to be a different pre-op conversation for the patient. So. Thank you for bringing that up. That's a great one. Sometimes we tend to forget about the endothelium and uh, you do a great surgery and the patient just has extended amounts of swelling. And so that's a really good point. And all of that kind of te- comes back towards the post-operative skills. And that's uh, the regular monitoring of the patient's visual outcomes, 
getting a patient in to see a retina specialist if needed, following up with their refractor results, getting them prepped and ready. As sometimes, you know, part of managing expectations is, you know, you say if you shoot a layup, it's easy to hit it on the first shot. If you're shooting a, you know, full course shot, you might need two attempts at it. So, you know, getting them prepped up and letting them know sometimes we can do LASIK or some sort of refractive, corneal refractive surgery afterwards using different technologies in our in our IOL repertoire. You know, there's certain like light adjustable lenses that some people like to use that give us a little bit of leeway. Um, maybe not giving somebody uh, a high technology lens. Sometimes they want it, but they don't make the powers. And so, you know, having those expectations, it's it's there's a lot that goes into it. And fortunately, the vast majority of our patients have healthy, good eyes, and they have great results. It's dealing with these patients who want to have that, especially these high refractive errors, extreme refractive errors. They they want better, good vision more than anybody. And it's sometimes hard to have the discussion that, you know, your vision will be limited regardless. So it is taking that a little bit of extra chair time, being considerate, giving them the, the education that they need and setting up the expectations to let them know that you will give them the best possible outcome that they can receive. Um, some patients, you know, some of us don't necessarily specialize in refractive surgery. So as important as it is in, in, you know, partnering up with a retinal surgeon for the high myops, it's also good to have partner up with a refractive surgeon in certain cases to take advantage of the different technologies if, if we're not using them correctly. Do you guys have any more uh, tidbits that you guys would like to share regarding cataract surgery? Yeah, I, I mean, I guess some of the, the more extreme cases here, you, you talked about it a little bit, but I've, I've been going more and more to liking to use an LAL in some of these patients where I know the calcs aren't going to be, you know, a slam dunk. I know there's a higher chance for um, post-operative refractive error. It really gives you a lot more leeway with that. It, you know, still still don't want to ever say the P word and, and tell patients it's going to be perfect after <laughs> afterwards, even, even though that technology is really good, but um, you know, it, it really, you still, still want to do good um, IOL calcs and try to try to get the prescription as good as you can. But um, the LAL is a very forgiving lens with a, a wide landing zone that makes it nice for some of these patients too. Well, as we conclude this episode of CRST, the podcast, I want to thank my wonderful co-contributors to this August issue of CRST, Madura Shah, Dr. Susanna Rowe, and Dr. Drew Dixon for their invaluable insights and expertise. We hope we have provided a deeper understanding of how to approach and manage cataract surgery in challenging cases with comorbidities. For more pearls on performing cataract surgery in the presence of various comorbidities, check out the August issue of CRST online at www.crstodaY.com. Thank you all for tuning in. For more shows like the one you just listened to, check out the podcast channel on itube.net.